Hello, and welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, public speaker, actor, and creative coach, and this show is meant to give you tools to claim the word creative, take fear out of the driver's seat of your life, and own your right to have a dream and take up space. Do you ever get the feeling that you aren't doing what you're meant to be doing? Maybe you hate your job, or maybe you actually really like it, but it just doesn't feel fulfilling in the right way. How often do you listen to that feeling? Do you listen to your gut in general? Today's guest was a successful chef and an addict when she hit rock bottom on the floor of a prison cell at 27 for a DUI. After that, she got sober. And though at the time she had a very successful career in the restaurant industry, something else started calling to her, a deep resonance in her heart and gut. It was music. However, at this point, she had never written a song. What ensues next is nothing short of the magic of creativity and the truth that what is meant for you will never miss you if you listen. But before we get to that, I want to ask you a quick favor. If you love the show and it has helped you, please consider leaving it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. It really helps push the show up the charts and I read every single one and they mean so much. Okay, now to the guest. Her name is Mary Gaucher. She's a Grammy-nominated country singer-songwriter, author, and songwriting coach. Her songs have been recorded by huge artists, including Jimmy Buffett, Blake Shelton, and Tim McGraw. She wrote her first song in her 30s, moved to Nashville at 40, and got nominated for her first Grammy in her late 50s. Mary is proof that creativity has no age limits. As long as you have your why, or as Mary calls it, your mission statement in mind, and it's one of service, the creative path can lay out for you at any point. She's also proof of the healing power of creativity. Her brand new book is amazing, and it's called Saved by a Song. You'll hear me reference it a lot in the interview. It's out July 6th, and I highly recommend it. Music and songwriting helped her move through her childhood trauma and find connection. Not only was she saved by a song, but now she spreads that healing power by writing songs with war veterans so that they have a creative outlet to address and begin to heal from their trauma. She teaches how to trust yourself, express yourself, and ultimately love yourself. Now here she is, Mary Gaucher. I want to start at the beginning of when this all started to brew. I know that you had a traumatic childhood. You ended up becoming addicted to alcohol. You got a DUI, ended up in jail, and then got sober. And then you say you found music. Can you take me through this part of your life before you found music? What was going on with you? And let's go from there. Before... I started writing songs that was in the restaurant business. And so I'm trained to be a chef and I was arrested uh, for drunk driving opening night of my second restaurant in Boston. And so at the time I thought that was the worst possible thing that could ever happen. It was really embarrassing and I was mortified, but it got me sober. And I really needed to get sober. I had a lot of trouble with drugs and alcohol from the time I was a teenager. So there's this gap you ask me about. I don't, I don't can hardly, I like, I can weave in and out of the story, but I don't have a great uh, memory of it because I was drunk and I was running hard and um, I really was, was lost and I, I needed desperately to stop and start doing the work of recovery to get myself uh, 
into a place where I was able to become more creative. I was able to talk people into opening a restaurant and backing my, I could talk people into to backing me there. And I was creative with food, but, but I wasn't creative uh, in the way I think that my soul was put here to be creative. If the difference between doing something for money that was successful and doing something for truth and beauty that was purpose purposeful, it's really different types of creativity for me. Yeah. What I was wondering, what did it feel like when you were in the creativity of cooking and being an entrepreneur and running a business versus what it feels like to be in the creativity of being a songwriter and a performer? Yeah, it's two really different things. For some people, they're definitely called and, and, and put here to be in the kitchen, to be entrepreneurs, to be in the restaurant business, to be feeding people in a beautiful way and and providing uh, meals for people creatively. And, uh, you know, I appreciate those people so much. So I'm not in any way trying to diminish that. But for me personally, what I didn't like was having all those employees and all that responsibility and the uh, pressure of so many people's uh, lives depending on me. I found it to be, in the beginning, exciting. And then it, it it just was like every day was pushing a rock up the mountain and the ins and outs of running the business. And one of the great things about songwriting and the way that I've chosen to do it is that it's a solitary enterprise. I'm not running around with a band or a bus or a a giant crew. Uh, really, I have always had the vision of doing what I do, which is it being a troubadour. You know, I go town to town, mostly solo, and play uh, songs to people in small rooms. And I have this freedom that that I really enjoy. And I like the the lack of having to be responsible for so many people's employment and lives. And it kind of sounds like the one, like cooking for you, led to burnout, whereas this one lights you up. Exactly. Yeah. And it wasn't the cooking that was the problem. It was running... Well, at the time, I had manifested three restaurants. So I had one and then another. And they were three different concepts. And I was just running crazy. I was running crazy. Yeah, one is enough, but three is a lot. So I I love this part of the book when you describe you're driving down the road, you've just gotten sober, and the Indigo Girls come on. And you had an actual physical reaction to hearing them. Can you explain what that was? I wish I could, because I got to do an interview with Amy Ray in five days, and I don't know how to explain it. All I know, and I hadn't written a song yet, is that they were at the very beginning of their career. I heard them on college radio. They they hadn't uh, 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 released their hit record yet. They hadn't even signed their big uh, record deal. This was sort of underground radio, but they had that sound. And when I heard it, it was, I don't know, it was speaking to me almost outside of something I can describe. It felt like a body blow. And I I couldn't understand what it was trying to tell me. There's no explanation for this. It wasn't like I was a secret songwriter or someone who was longing to be in the music. I had three restaurants. I was absolutely over my head and committed to making them work. I hadn't envisioned another career for myself at all. I was a couple of years sober. 
and I heard them, and I heard that sound that they make, which I think is just otherworldly. Those two voices are, they add up to a choir of, I don't know what. For me, it was in retrospect, and I put this in the book, it was, I felt for the first time the pain of an unlived life. Oh. They They sounded like possibility to me. They sounded like a door opening and I couldn't understand where the, what, what it was spirit world talking to me. It's very hard to explain what happened, but yeah, it was physical and it hurt and I didn't understand it. I was really drawn to it, but it was also painful and I didn't understand any of all this. I've talked to their manager, Russell, about what happened and this, and he said, Mary, you're not the only one. A lot of people are, are uh, have told me that this has been the effect of their music. And so I think their work it changed the world by changing what was possible for a lot of people. They opened a huge door. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally related to that. And it almost felt like your inner creative, this songwriter that had been lying dormant in you for 30 years was like, waking up and pounding on your chest and you didn't know who was at the door yet but you knew damn well someone was at that door yes that's exactly right and that that is the best description i've ever heard there was something knocking that got triggered by by uh by hearing those voices together and uh it took a little bit longer but I started to put it together. It took another, I don't know how long, but I got sober eventually, maybe a year after. I can't remember the times very well, but I got sober and then I went to see him and I, I felt that thing I felt times a million. And I saw the way that the audience was acting. Uh, it was mostly women and they were all screaming for Amy and Emily. I'm like, oh my God, what is this? This is a different reality. And it was exciting and it made me, it made my heart hurt all at the same time. And eventually I pieced it together just guessing that my spirit was trying to tell me, you can do this. Look, they're doing it. You can do this. It has something to do with being gay and looking gay. It, it also has something to do with being Southern. Uh, it has something to do with, uh, there's some kind of magic that happens when they sing together that is very hard to describe. There's a real power in people singing together and their voices together is just so, they do something uh, that is incredible. And yeah. young Mary needed to hear them desperately. And young Mary did. That I mean, was one of my favorite parts of your book when you describe go, I, I got a mineral water. And then I saw these women rushing the stage and crying. And this thing in me was back pounding at my chest again. And then you described this moment where you went to see one of your employees do an open mic night. And if I understand correctly, like this is the moment when you got it, you got the message yeah. clearly. Can you explain what that was like? Yeah, that was the moment I got it. I went to see Christy Zerlango play an original song. She was a waitress uh, at my restaurant at Club Passim. And uh, we sat in the back, and I had never been to an open mic. I didn't even know. I'd never heard the term before. But when she got up there and sang and played, it was like the light bulb screwed in. I want to do that. I want to do that. I'd had a guitar since I was 13, 14 years old. I just 
wasn't playing it. I certainly wasn't writing songs or it was dusty. The strings were a decade old. It was sitting in the closet. I hadn't brought it out in forever. I wanted to ask you that because I had a similar story to that where I carried a guitar with me like my whole life but just never played it. I'd always keep it in my closet. I don't know what I thought I was going to do. Did you have something similar where it was always nearby? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. What's interesting is how we don't know ourselves yet. Yeah. And we fill, we fill our life with things that are not us. uh, And then the job becomes to remove them to get to what is us. Um, Why do we do that? Because I think that's the way that that our culture teaches us to become an adult is to put away childish things and go make some money, go succeed. And I think we're taught from early on that that being creative is nice, but you got to get a real job. And uh, it never occurred to me until it did occur to me that I might be able to figure out how to turn this guitar into a real job. It just didn't, it it didn't, I had no idea that I even wanted to do that. But in the deepest part of myself, that's exactly what I wanted to do. And once I saw, okay, of course, I didn't see Christy play and then go, I'm going to be a songwriter and move to Nashville. Right. Uh, I saw Christy play and I went, I just, I want to get on that stage. I want to write one song, get on that stage and play it. And it grew from there, and it took a decade to fully embrace this as something I really want to do. I came to Nashville when I was 40. Which I love, and I think it's so important to tell this piece of your story, because some so many people tell themselves the lie that they can't reinvent themselves if they find something that makes them feel like who they are at a different it's, time than society tells us is the right time, which is 18, which is fucking crazy who knows anything at 18 I was an idiot (laughs) all we know at 18 is what is what we've been told yeah um is is a good idea for us what we've been told our aptitude is what we've been told adult behavior looks like and I didn't know I, I had no idea and even after I started playing open mics regularly I thought it was just something I would do as uh, uh, a hobby or something that I would do. I was really driven to get good at it, but the restaurants were how I paid the rent and that's what I had to focus on. And that was my job until one day I realized that no, I really want to give this a shot and I'm not going to ever succeed if I do it halfway. Mm. Uh, I got to give it the whole enchilada to get good at it. I got to make it do or die or I'm never going to get past playing open mics. How did you get to that point? Like how many open mics did you go to? How long were you in this process of writing and perfecting before you said, I got to give up this business that I have poured a lot into? How long did it take? And what was the final moment? It was about a 10 year process. Um, I made a record of the first 10 songs that I thought were good that I'd written. And that record got nominated for Boston Music Award, Best New Artist. And I'm like, what? That blew my mind because there's a billion people with a folk guitar in Boston and there's only four people that get nominated for Best New Artist. And I was one of them with my first record. And uh, I was like, dang, that's pretty 
that's a pretty big deal. I didn't win, but that got my attention. And then I, I, I made another record, and with those songs, I started getting invited to play places. I got invited to play the Newport Folk Festival, which in folk music, that's that. well, it was. It, it's kind of now the Newport Rock Festival, but back then, it was the best folk festival in the country. And I couldn't believe they asked me to play it. I knew that kind of validation was to be taken seriously. I decided after that happened that I need to walk, I need to, I need to get out of Boston. I need to come to Nashville. I need to walk in the direction of my heart. Even though, I mean, those festivals are a big deal, but they don't give you a career. You don't go from the festival and suddenly fill rooms. You're just a new kid on the festival uh, uh, roster and you get a good little 45 minutes in front of a nice audience, but that's not going to change your life and and turn it into a career. It's it's an exciting moment, but to build a career, you have to do a million things and, and invest in it over time. And so I decided the career of being a cook and a chef and a restaurateur took all my energy and I wasn't going to have a career that succeeded in music unless I got to a music city and started taking it seriously. And that's eventually what I did after I played Newport. I noticed you said it got my attention. I think that's a really interesting choice of words. How much of your career in artistry do you think has been from just like noticing things and then putting together the dots, tracing the lines of your story and figuring out what it means? Isn't that interesting? What got my, like, the truth got my attention? What is, who's waving the flag in front of us saying, what is it? I I think it's a big question. There was breadcrumbs I was following. Who dropped the breadcrumbs? And honestly, I don't know how to answer that. Although I think it's a great big question. I do think that we're called to do certain things. Uh, and if we don't have, uh, I, let's put it in first person. I was called to do certain things and I didn't have a lot of confidence that I was going to be any good at it. And so I thought maybe the calling might've made a mistake and knocked on the wrong door. And then you get, uh, I got these incredibly validating moments that said, no, you, Mary Gaucher. I'm like, me? Are you kidding me? I, I don't know how to be on a big stage like that. I, I had no idea how to do that. I was playing open mics from open mics, not playing gigs at all to Newport Folk Festival. You gotta be kidding me. But I mean, I, I guess the universe was screaming in my face. You're a songwriter. Go sing and play songs. But it, it took a while. It took about 10 years of going to conferences and, and meeting people. Eventually got someone to call herself my manager. Eventually found someone that was my booking agent. And none of all this sounds official, but this was a rinky-dink little operation. You know, my booking agent's phone got turned off. I had to pay his phone bill. I mean, we're not talking, it it sounds good, but it was a mess. I was holding them up as much as they were holding me up, but it got me to the next place. And those people helped open the door to these opportunities that then gave me the confidence to keep going and fully commit myself to being an artist. Yeah. And I mean, in the book, you talk a lot about the inner critic. I mean, I kind of think of it like the 
shame talk and love talk. You know, I have the same thing where it's one day it's, you're so bad, you suck. You've never done anything good in your whole life. The other ones, no, you're great. You can do this. I believe in you. And I mean, luckily the love talk usually wins in the end, but you really described it beautifully when you were talking about going to your first open mic and how you got up there and you've been practicing this song for months. You were really confident about it. And then you just couldn't remember the words. And what I love about what you write next is how you got to the next week because you just told yourself you had to do better than you did last time. That's it. Tell me about that. Is that still your mentality in life? Yeah, I think if I'm comparing myself to anybody other than myself, I'm in real dangerous territory. My, I think my job description remains, your job, Mary, is to continue to improve, to take on the next challenging idea, the next difficult fingering position on the guitar, the next, for me, I ended up writing this book. That was a six-year process that was hard. The ne- I, I, if I'm taking on the next challenge, little by slowly, moving in a new direction, that is going to keep me uh, occupied. And that's the best, I think the best way to go is to compare ourselves to ourself. Am I moving myself forward and in a way that is challenging? I, if I, let's say I compare myself to Brandy Carlisle. God gave Brandy Carlisle one of the best voices of the century. I don't have that. I can't compare myself to Brandy Carlisle in any, it's not, it's like getting in the ring with Muhammad Ali. I'm not a boxer. I'm not really a singer. I don't have that. I get by as a singer, but what I'm doing is also working in a, a small arena as a troubadour. I love Brandy. In fact, she's agreed to do an event with me for the book. But if I compare myself to her, I'm just going to feel small because I don't have the same job description as her. And she's always pushing herself to do something harder and new. Um, You know, when she decided to sing Joni Mitchell's best record in front of an audience that included Joni Mitchell, I mean, (laughs) but that's her gift. Yeah. You know, the equivalent for me, if there is such a thing, is going to work with soldiers with PTSD in spite of being terrified that they're not. I expected to have a little homophobia coming my way. I was wrong. I've never been more warmly embraced, but it was scary. Yeah. And so I, as long as I'm facing some fears and doing new stuff based on my own job description, which is to constantly push myself forward, I'm in the right frame of mind. Comparison uh, to anything else is just a not, it's not fair to myself. How did you come up with your job description? You know, I don't know. I, I think I have that nasty voice in my head that you're trying to make a, a living as a singer. You can't sing. I, I listen to my voice. I know my range. It's it, There is no range. But then I, I love think, your voice. I have to oh. tell you, Mary, I really do. And I think that you, you have something too, which is your authentic voice, your truth. And every time you sing, it brings me to tears because you sing the truth. Oh, thank you for saying that. I mean it. I mean, no one else can sing it the way you can. That's the thing that I do have. I don't have the range. I can't hit the notes 
I don't have that classically, intrinsically, everybody understands amazing voice. I don't have that. What I, what I do have, and I know it, is the ability to make people feel. And I think that's my job. I, my job is to bring emotion to to people. I think songs are what feelings sound like. And if I can make people feel, that's what the job is done. And I I don't have to compare myself to people who have uh, a, a different type of voice. And I don't feel as though I spend a lot of time doing that. Although I do wish I had that kind of voice. I do. I wish I had. I wish I. I, I mean, I do. But I have plenty. And I'm not complaining. I know that I can make a 300-pound biker named Grizzly cry. Right about that in the book, and that—that that is really the job is to is to make people feel. I think as an artist, that's what you want to do is you want to make people feel. Yeah, that's how I qualify art is anything that makes me feel. Yeah, yeah. yeah it could be the most beautiful painting in the world, but if I don't feel anything when I look at it, I'm not gonna. It doesn't resonate. No, who cares? I, I mean, might, yeah, someone could be note perfect, but if they don't cut into something in your soul, it really doesn't matter. Well, yeah, not to me or you, yeah. but I think the general public doesn't have that measuring stick. Yeah. You know, they are, are more predisposed to to be in awe of people who have a vocal ability um, that is outside of their range and what they're capable of. Uh, so they look at listen to their voice and they look at the person that's a glorified uh, singer and that's what they pay to hear. And more power to them. They feel something just from the power of the voice. But I need the voice to be, for me, you got to sing me something that, that goes inside of my heart and soul and makes me feel. Not yeah. just the voice has to be tied to a truth. Absolutely. And it brings up this other point that I've heard you talk about in a lot of interviews. You said when you first started writing and singing music, you would have a room of people and you're known for writing gut-wrenching and some sad songs. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you'd have a room of people and half the people would come up to you after and they'd be like, oh my God, it was so sad. <laughs> and the other people would come up to you often with tears in their eyes saying, thank you. You see me. Yeah. Folk singer. <laughs> but it's just interesting to me because your music, it, I know it's describing sad scenarios, but it doesn't strike me as sad. It strikes me mm. as honest. Thank you. And to me, honesty is true optimism. I call it angsty optimism. It's acknowledging everything difficult going on in life because the human experience is brutal. So acknowledging that while also believing that the best possible thing can happen. And that's what your music reflects for me. Oh my God. I love you so much for saying that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I agree. I don't think it's sad. I think it's honest. Yeah. And it approaches difficult subject matter. But just by virtue of singing the difficult subject matter, there's hope. People who have uh, given up, who have despair, they don't get on stage and sing anymore. There's not, you're not gonna, you're not gonna, you're not gonna transform something if you don't find a way to describe it. I think it's an old, well understood truth that if you sing the blues together, you feel better. Right. And uh, I think that's really my my mission is to um, is to sing a, a, a historically really challenge of really challenging subject matter, but in a way that resonates so we can feel it together and go we're gonna be all right. 
This is just what it, this is just what it's like to be alive in this body in this time. And I haven't been singled out by an angry God. This is just what it's like. Yeah. And together we're going to get to the other side. Let's tell the truth. And yeah, only happy songs after a while make me feel really sad. <laughs> me too. It's like, it's too big of a burden to bear to just, I don't know. I mean, I personally have always gravitated toward sad music. Like I even like it when I'm running, it invigorates me because to your point, it makes me feel seen and to know I'm not alone in my struggles. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And you talk a lot about, cause you had a traumatic childhood. Like you, you've talked openly about therapy. We're very like pro therapy on the show and about how music can alchemize, I think you say alchemize trauma, is that right? I think so. I think it alchemizes the isolation because a byproduct of trauma that's inescapable is a feeling of being removed. Something happened, I can't fully describe it because it's ineffable. There's not enough words to describe. I can't make you understand using words. I'm alone in this experience and I'm removed and I don't understand what's happening. And I feel more and more isolated. And I think when you get at it with melody and use a melody combined with, with descriptive language, it could be poetic language to, to point to the pain. Um, you build a bridge that the person who's been removed can cross and other people can cross towards that person who's been removed. And that's what I call alchemy. It, it creates resonance. And once we connect, um, that sense of isolation is deeply diminished and that reduces suicide ideation. And I learned this through my own work, but I also learned it big time working with veterans. Um, who have been highly traumatized. And that album you did was just, I mean, incredible, Grammy nominated. I want to get into that. Before we do, I want to know, is there a song, I'm sure there's many, but like one song that you really think in particular did this alchemy for you when you were in a low moment? You know, I think it's cumulative. I think you play something that's terrifying to play and people, and you look at the audience and you, and you go, okay. And when they say the words or in their eyes say me too, there's something that happens. That was scary for me. Thank y'all. Thank y'all. I didn't know how that was going to go. And of course it's not the whole audience, but there's enough connection happening. I mean, a lot of people cannot handle too much truth. They didn't sign up for that. They just want to be entertained. <laughs> I make a joke on stage sometimes that I can tell who's here on a blind date. And one of you thought it was a good idea. And the other one's knowing for sure this relationship has nowhere to go. Well, you isn't know? that nice, though? You did the job for them. Now they don't have to date for another that's, six months. You saved everyone time. That's You're what welcome. I say. I'm, <laughs> I'm offering a community service. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I would really like that, actually. You know what? Next guy I'm dating, I'm bringing him to one of your shows. There you go. And if he can't understand, it's going to be tough. Yeah, I mean, honestly, chop, chop. If you can't understand, go enjoy someone else. I'm going to be with Mary. It works for me. I, you know, there's a real resistance in some people to having a flood of emotion. It overwhelms them. Yeah. And other people, they just live for it. They want to feel. 
and they go to music to feel. And it doesn't have to be a little folk room. I mean, I go see Bruce Springsteen because I'm up off my feet really quickly. And I'm in. And I, we're singing together. And I want to feel. There's just that connection, that, that melody combined with truthful lyric that can do that. Hardly, I can't hardly think of any other art form that can do it. So is there a specific song? No. I think it's cumulative. Lots of songs later, I see what's happening here. The, the music creates resonance. And resonance is connection, which we long for. And I think that's why so many people are driven to the arts, is to help themselves, without even knowing it, to heal. Yeah. Yeah, because that's what I was thinking. And you're like, some people don't like to feel. I'm like, well, good luck healing if you can't feel. I mean, there's no... And good luck being a songwriter if you don't want to feel. I mean, yeah, I don't know how you could do it, actually. But one of your songs that really made me feel deeply was The War After the War. Yeah, The War After the War. Um, yeah, the song that you wrote with the the, wife, the spouses of veterans. Yeah. And, I mean, I always like to, because I'm a songwriter, I look when I listen to a song, who wrote it? And I saw a, a lot of different names on there. So I'm assuming, did you split the songwriting credits with all those women? Absolutely, yeah. What a gift. I mean, like, what a gift you gave them, because I really believe creativity is our birthright, and some of us haven't claimed it yet, but we all have it in us. And so... Can you tell me a little bit about this project you did? And then I don't know if you're open to playing that song, but I, I know. I'd be happy to. Yeah. You would? Sure. Happy to. Yeah. Songwriting with Soldiers is a nonprofit that I've been a part of for seven or eight years now. And we pair up wounded veterans and sometimes their spouses and, and kids. We do family retreats with professional songwriters. Uh, so there's usually uh, five or six veterans two or three songwriters, and we go to a retreat center. And for two two days, two and a half days, uh, the songwriters pair up with the veterans, and we help, we help them tell their story through song. So they have the story, we have the songwriting chops. And so what it, basically I do is interview them. And in the war after the war, those were six, I think six, uh, six wives uh, married to bomb experts. This is called EOD, Explosive Ordnance Disposal. So they're EOD wives, and they have a lot in common. Their husbands have served at different times in different uh, branches of the military, but they have a lot in common. And what I heard them say as we started talking was that that we thought, we all thought, our job was to get him home alive. It's the most dangerous job in the military. EOD is so incredibly dangerous. Uh, and these marriages are so incredibly difficult. They jokingly call EOD stands for everyone is divorced. It is a high-pressure job, and it yeah. puts so much intensity in a marriage if your partner's going off to dismantle live bombs every day. How do you sleep? I mean, oh, my God. It's just hard. And uh, their service is tremendous, but the pressure is even more tremendous. And so the wife said, if we just, if we just got him home in one piece without his arms or legs blown off or not in a body bag... Then we, can, then we can get into the business of being married. And, and they said what we found out is as a result of the job that they did, getting them home wasn't the end of the war. There's a war after the war. And I'm like, oh, my God, boom, top of the page. That's a title. It just came to me in my brain just really uh, inexplicably dropped in. Who's going to care for the ones who care for the ones who went to war? Like, who, who's taking care of these wives? 
We don't hear about them, really. We don't know what they're going through. Civilians don't hear their stories. But someone needs to be supportive of these wives who are being supportive of these men who have served. And uh, so this song was written in the spirit of putting the spotlight on the women who say they feel invisible. And there's a line in the song that addresses that. One of the one of the women said, yeah, people come up to me and ask me how my husband's doing. And I say, you know, he's doing okay. And they say, you must feel really lucky. But they're not asking me how I'm doing. And that's common. And I don't think that is meanness. It's just a, a lack of understanding that, of what the wives are going through. Because they don't talk about it because they don't want to disgrace their husband's service or draw attention to the fact that they're in large numbers struggling with their partner's PTSD. I mean, the song is just so beautiful and I'm so excited we're going to get to hear it. But I think you talk a lot about how like the more specific you get, the more universal it is. And with this song, I think it's such a brilliant example because I think about my mom who was a caregiver for my grandma for 12 years, who was going through something similar, you know, keeping my grandma alive, but no one ever asked like how she was doing or like anyone who has been a partner of somebody with trauma, because I always say trauma has legs, you know, until you work it through it, it walks right into somebody else. And um, I really related to it from that. Yeah. From that perspective. And it also just really makes me think next time I meet a spouse of a, of a military, of someone in the military, I'm going to thank them as well. That's one of the things I learned pretty quickly doing this work is that when one member of a family serves, the whole family serves. Everybody who's a military family moves a lot. They're uprooted a lot. And their parent, be it their mother or father, whoever's in the military, or both, are gone a lot. And so the family is in service to to their country in a way that if you're not a military family, it's impossible to understand the depth of it. It's deep uh, and it's necessary and it's important. And and we as civilians don't get told the story, really. Until you help to tell it. That's my job. (laughs) So let's hear the war after the war. Thank you so much, Mary. I'm so excited. Welcome. Who's gonna care for the ones who care for the ones who went to war? There's landmines in the living room, eggshells on the floor. Lost myself in the shadow of your honor and your pain. You stare out.
That was amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Those women are amazing. They're so strong and they're so uh, unselfish. I couldn't be that unselfish. I don't have that courage. I couldn't be married to a bomb expert. I don't think I'm, I could I, be either. I'm terrified of my partner dying. If their job every day was to face death, I would just be scared all the time. And yeah. uh, gosh, what they do for for uh, for our country and for their marriage is phenomenal. It's unbelievable. It really is. And I'm just so happy you told their story because it doesn't get told enough. And it was just, it's so clear. I mean, you listen to that song and you fully get it. Yeah. And again, it goes back to you helped them be seen and somebody else in their story. Just a beautiful moment of creatively unleashing. <laughs> you mentioned your partner. Do you two perform together? Yeah, Jamie plays and sings with me and she also has her own solo career. We've been uh, cooped up in the pandemic together all year and really have gotten sort of this duo thing going. And when she goes off, she's got a new record that's coming out soon. When she goes off and does her own thing, I'm going to be sad. <laughs> I'm gonna miss oh, her. yeah. I was going to say that's sad because I, I was listening to an interview you did. I think it was at, like some festival at the beginning of 2020. So like right before the pandy hit and you two were singing together. Um, yeah, she's a brilliant harmony singer. Her hero of heroes, of all heroes, is Emmy Lou, oh, wow. who is uh, someone who has a solo career, but is 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 phenomenally good at being a harmony singer, which is why everybody wants her on their record. So I want to know what it's like to work with your partner and like any tips you have on how to make that work. Well, we're three years into this, and I think the the challenge for me is to not take up too much space, to allow enough space for her, and to know and support what it is that she's put here to do. I mean, she's put here to sing harmonies, but she's also put here to write songs, make records, and reach her own audience selfishly I would just love to have her with me all the time and that's just not what I don't think that's what our life is going to be like because that's not what her her mission statement is and so I got to honor her mission statement and and she honors mine and I think it takes a lot of understanding and a whole lot of patience and forgiveness when things are 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 going off the rails we got to find a way back so far so good we we're able to, but we do derail sometimes, and it, it it's a delicate dance working with your, your partner. I know. I feel like in one hand, it's like the most fun, amazing thing in the world. If you can do everything together, how great is that? But then when you do everything together, you're doing everything together, <laughs> and you have to figure it out. So there was also this amazing thing you said about how you took romantic love off of a pedestal. You had had it on this pedestal because of, you know, you were in... I think it, you were in an orphanage for the first year of your life. And so you were That's always right. searching for that to save you. And so you decided to take it off the pedestal and realize, hey, I got me. I've got like my spiritual connection. That's what I've got. How did that, because obviously you're in a very beautiful relationship, but like how did that mentality, that switch that you made affect both your creative life 
and your relationship. Yeah, you know, that that was a hard, hard lesson for me. I had so many romantic loves thinking that was going to be home. I was going to find my home there. You know, everybody tells you, you got to find your home inside yourself. I'm like, yeah, I'll find it when I find that perfect lover and we'll build it together. And I really, truly, absolutely held on to that for most of my life. And I went through people. I hurt people. I didn't understand the deep truth and home has to be an inside job. And I think the orphanage and being adopted and leaving uh, my adoptive family at 15, just looking for home, looking for home, looking for home. I was always looking for home. At a certain stage, I hit bottom. Like I did with the alcohol, I hit bottom with this romantic love is going to save me idea. And what happened was I stayed single intentionally And I made a commitment to do that for a year, which I had never done. And that year turned into two years, two into three. And I stayed single intentionally for five years until I met my current uh, partner, Jamie. And those five years reconstructed me in a way. I didn't love it. I'm happier with the person. I like having a person to tell my day to. And, and oh my God, I can't imagine having to go through this pandemic alone. It was just incredibly uh, blessed to have Jamie with me. We like each other. We enjoy each other. We could play music together. We wrote songs. We, we really solidified the coupleship in the pandemic. But I do know that the five-year single taught me that I can build myself internally without having another person in the story that on my own, I'm whole or I had to become whole. It's a tough one, especially I think for women. Yeah. Um, How did you do it? What did you have any tactics and what was your, was it just time? You know, I just made a lot of phone calls and reached out a lot. And when that loneliness hit and it hit every day, right about suntown down, I would reach out and talk to people and uh, bring people closer and build friendships and build my commitment deepened to my art. I made two records. I started really working with the veterans. And it was in this time that I made the record of the uh, songs I wrote with the veterans and, and all of the videos that go with it. And, and I deepened my commitment to service and uh, working with kids, especially uh, kids who are indigo kids, kids who who are brilliant, but they feel outside. Creative kids who are gay, who are genius, who are who are having a tough go of it with the way that high schools and junior highs reward you. You know, kids who aren't going to be on the football team, they're not going to be a cheerleader, they're not going to fit into the classic description of their gender, gender queers that maybe maybe aren't homosexual, but they display a balance of masculine and feminine traits, which the young people today or embracing more, but it's still a hard go, and especially small towns, especially in the Deep South. So working with those kids, I found ways to be useful in the world, and that gives gives me purpose. I wound my way into service and good friends, and the hole that I thought romantic love was supposed to fill got smaller, and I had purpose. It's purpose that's lacking when I feel empty. And I want some lover to fix it. That's in retrospect, lazy. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I relate. Like, I think I realized in my last relationship, I was pretty codependent and it's just like another kind of addiction. You're searching for something outside of yourself. 
And it's yeah. like, yeah. yeah, it is an addiction. And I yeah. ended up in treatment for it at 18 years sober, which I also talk about pretty, I think it's pretty funny in the book. Where well, <laughs> tragedy is pretty funny in retrospect. Tragedy is funny. It yeah. can be funny. And uh, yeah. I, I did. I had to get help for it. And to, uh, I didn't come to these revelations solo. I've been in therapy a long time. And I do absolutely, like you, uh, believe that a great therapist, recovery, asking for help is something that a lot of us have to do. And there's no shame in that. The help's available. Hooray. A hundred years ago, they would electrocute you or lobotomize you. Or Now we have so many options that we're dealing in neuroplasticity, rewriting our brains. There's a deep understanding of how to work with trauma now. The cause of addiction is trauma. There's so much excitement going on in, in the psychology, psychiatry, in recovery. Why not ask for help? It's there. Yeah. You know, to go back to your service, especially since it's Pride Month when we're talking, I'm curious, like if there's like a young gay person or trans person, non-binary person listening, who's feeling lost, who's feeling trapped, maybe they're in the deep South and like can't be themselves. What kind of advice would you give them on how to step forward? Yeah, that's tough, right? The, 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 the challenge is to find people that will be allies, to find a safe place. And um, man, that can be tough. You move towards people that are safe. Looking for allies is the name of the game. We're, not, we're like fish. We belong in a school. We, we need each other. And historically, my generation, I'm 59, gay kids just got the hell out of there. They went to New Orleans. They went to Atlanta. They went to Houston. They went to Austin. They went to Dallas. They got out of the small towns to find other gay people to be with, to find community. But that's changing a little. And I think that having this discussion openly is opening doors to understanding. But I think finding uh, others like you and allies is what uh, we all need. No, it, whatever it is that we carry that makes us feel removed and different. Because we're not different. We are all so much more alike than we know. I mean, I learned that going to work with the military. I really didn't think I'd be embraced by special forces, you know, like big gay me. I'm here to work with you boys. And I'm like, oh my God, they're going to kill me. But that was not at all my experience. My experience is they were hurting and I know what that's like. And I have something that I think can help. And if I just can get a little of your story, maybe we can write a song and find our way into connection. And we always find our way into connection when we write songs together. Time for a Diet Coke break. Yes, yes, yes. I really need it up. Love what you love. Diet Coke. Get runway ready. A chance to win the ultimate shopping experience plus hundreds of prizes curated by Kate Moss. Promo packs in store, 18 plus, T's and C's. Visit coke.co.uk slash break. Yeah, and I love the way you describe writing songs, especially because I've heard you describe many times what it was like to write with them. And you say, when I'm writing a song, it's like I'm making a movie and how you're figuring out the pieces and you don't know what the plot is going to end with. Can you walk me through how that works? I mean, maybe in particularly with these military 
men and women? Yeah, yeah. The job is to is to bear witness in non judgment, to put down all judgment and just listen. Don't pretend like you know what they're talking about. You don't. I have not been to Iraq. I have not been in the military. I don't know what it's like to go to war. And I have no reference for what they're saying. So ask good questions. Don't say, I, yeah, I remember the time that I, I don't. So just listen, ask questions, write down what they say, and the story starts to show itself. What they need to say starts to become a part of what they're saying. And that's true even if I'm not writing with military. Like they're sending me young people to write with uh, here in Nashville who got record deals, and what they need to say starts to rise pretty quickly. If I just listen and ask good questions, I can find what's heavy on their heart and what's in their soul to say. Now, I'm not the writer they send people to to write the big hit. I'm the writer they send people to to write the album tracks that speak their heart and tell their fans who they are. And I'm good at that. That is something I can do. Um, so it's a real clean, clear line. Listen, bear witness, uh, nod, make eye contact. Don't sit in judgment. Be curious and write down what they say. And the story starts to appear on the page. Yeah. And I love what you described on one song. I think, I think it was the one, uh, where it was about like the being in the waffle house and getting the free food on veterans day. And at the end, I think you both came up with the line, you like high five each other. Yeah, it's just, it, it's such a great feeling. I mean, there's, I wish that everyone could know what it was like to complete a song and know you really did it. It's a high. Yeah. It's the high. And the last line just dropped right in. The last line, and it started to rain. It's like, oh my God. The whole thing just got completed and the last line summarizes the whole thing and we didn't see it coming and we landed on it together. It's the best to share that experience with someone and uh, to know that you've written something true and real, even if it's fiction. And that song is fiction, but we wrote the truth. And there is a distinction between courtroom truth and truth in fiction. And that is emotional truth. If all we write is the facts, that's like testifying in court or being a witness in a police investigation. We don't stick to the facts. We stick to the truth. The truth and the facts are different things. The facts are, are objective truth. I'm talking emotional truth. And you know, well, you know when you've landed something that's emotionally true and that people are going to love it because we need more emotional truth in the world and people are hungry for it. And when a songwriter lands it, it feels like it's the best feeling in the world. When you describe that, I truly feel like a lot of those moments, at least for me, have been like brought through by God. Like it's like spirit Absolutely. coming through. How is spirituality connected to music for you? Well, that's a tough question, although I talk about it as best I can a lot. The way that most of us uh, articulate is that the songs come through me more than from me. And a really good song feels like it was already written. I just pulled it out of the universe. It was floating by. It was like David talking about, I mean, about Michelangelo talking about David. He was in the marble. I just had to get him out of the marble. The vision, that vision uh, comes uh, through the artist more, I think, than from the artist. And it's implanted in us by the creator and the mystery. And we approach the mystery when we try to talk about these things. The great creative mystery. Who created us? 
How is creation even possible? The fact that we are is the most mysterious thing. The fact that there's life on this planet and it keeps reaching for life and reproducing itself is the great mystery. And I think creativity is tied to that mystery. The creator helps us be creative. And I think it comes, I definitely think it comes through spirit. And I think the life force itself is probably not light. It's probably sound and the sound is music. I love that. I love that. And I totally agree. I mean, I think that the universe in and of itself is creative. So why wouldn't you be? Mary, I could talk to you all day. <laughs> I, I have I have two final questions for you. I want to get back to your little self, because I believe creativity, as we talked about, is deeply connected to the inner child. And I mean, I think it's especially powerful because at that point, when you were a little girl, you didn't know that you were a songwriter. So I'm wondering if you and a younger version of yourself, whatever age you think of her, were standing in the same room and you're looking at each other, what would you say to her and why? Well, I guess I would say, don't cash all your chips in on love. That's not going to be the road for you. Home, what you hear people say, as you get through your years, is that home is an inside job. They're they're right. That's the first thing I would say. Uh, the second thing I would say is that uh, y- your audacity is what's going to save you. Just reach for the stars. Go for it. I don't regret having spent the years in the restaurant. I needed th- that time to recover and to heal and to uh, to get sober in mental, physical, emotional ways that took time. Uh, but it's the audacity that 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 makes life interesting. So um, I would encourage her to, I, I've always had audacity, but to, to go f- just those crazy things that you think up and dream of, do them and know that that is is what you're here to do is to be audacious that's what we're here to do and society and, and our culture is here to tell us not to well i say screw that because who's going to be the worker who's going to be the workers if everybody's out there being created i think that the machinery of capitalism and and the patriarchy keep us thinking small they keep we gotta, us too tired to think differently. We got to blow that up. Be yeah. audacious. Yeah. I love that. And what do you think little you would say to you now and why? Oh, she's so proud of me. I went and got her <laughs> and I brought her through all that hard stuff as an adult. And we're, um, uh, you know, I've done a lot of work in this arena, a lot of work. That treatment center I went to, that's what we did was integration work and uh, integrate the different severed parts of myself into the adult. And uh, I think uh, uh, the joy of life today is being fully integrated. And the little one is happy to to be integrated and not she's left be- left behind. Yeah, she's along for the ride. I mean, she's at every show. She's playing with you. I oh just, yeah, she's happy. She likes she's happy. it. Yeah. And I think like what a better note to end on that we can go get her. If you, if she's not with you or if he's not with you or they're not with you, go get them. That's what people mean by recovery. 
is you have to go get the parts of yourself that got severed by mental illness or trauma or violence. It could be a, a medical trauma. It could be any number of things cause us to um, sever, severing parts of ourselves and bringing it all in and integrating it is what integrity is. And it's our job as adults to 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 look behind ourselves and see what got left behind and go get it. Mary, thank you. I adore you and I'm so grateful for what you do in the world. I love what you're working on here. I think you're really helping people and I am honored to be one of your alumni. So much love. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening and thanks to my guest, Mary Gaucher. For more info on Mary, follow her at Mary Gaucher on Instagram. And that's spelled M-A-R-Y-G-A-U-T-H-I-E-R. And definitely check out her book, Saved by a Song, The Art and Healing Power of Songwriting. It's out July 6th, wherever you get your books, and it's amazing. Thanks to Unleash Associate Producer Emily Shulmanovich. You can follow her at We Can't Find Emily. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you liked what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow Unleash on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also tag Mary at Mary Gaucher so she can share it too. My wish for you this week is that you tune into and trust your gut. That feeling is leading you to the beauty you've been longing for. It's yours. I love you and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.